So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And if you're able to do so, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, um, last last Lord's Day, we looked mainly at verse 1 of this text. And if you were here, uh, you might remember that Paul there painted, uh, he paints for us a picture of the urgency of preaching the word of God. Uh, and there we saw that Paul, as we just read this morning again, he solemnly charged Timothy to preach the word of God. And in doing so, he gave him, in some sense, what you could say are three basic motivations or reasons why he should do that, why he should preach the word of God. And that's found in verse 1. And those three things are the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Uh, in other words, the presence of God and Christ in the church, even especially in the public worship of the church as Timothy ministered in the preaching of the word. The second of those motivations is the judgment of Christ that is to come. The judgment of Christ, not only upon the preacher himself, Timothy, who would have to answer for what he said, uh, says in the pulpit, but also on his listeners. There's a reason that Paul elsewhere in, the, in one of his letters to Timothy told him to, to be watchful about his life and his preaching, his teaching, for in doing so you'll save yourself, he says, and your hearers. If we're not preaching the gospel faithfully, uh, those who hear are not being taught the gospel of salvation, which is a fearful thing to think about. The third reason was uh, the, the kingdom of Christ and his appearing. So you could say, and I think I said in some way last week, the judgment of Christ and the kingdom of Christ, which was to come in his return, in some ways is kind of the positive and negative. The judgment to come, which isn't all negative. For believers, the judgment is a joyful thing, uh, but it also speaks of the kingdom I think that speaks of the reward that Christ has promised to those uh, who faithfully serve him in this life, not the least of which would be those who preach the gospel. And so you think about this, there are much more, many more reasons you could probably think about why the word should be preached, practical reasons why the gospel must be ministered every Lord's Day. Um, think about the salvation of sinners, the sanctification of saints, the growth of the church, all these things, the glory of God or all reasons to preach the word. But I think verse 1, among other things, verse 1, it doesn't use this phrase, but I think Paul is saying there in some way that the fear of God, the fear of the Lord, should constrain those who are called ministers of, of the word of God that they might preach God's word clearly and faithfully in every, in every way. I think the fear of God ranks at, at the top of the list in many ways when it comes to the reasons or the so-called the why of preaching God's word. Well, we looked at the why of preaching God's word, so to speak, last Sunday. And uh, this Sunday, I think we're going to turn our attention at least briefly to the what or even the how of preaching the word. And, and so I'll ask, uh, we're going to see this in verse 2 mainly, but I don't know if you ever, ever thought about this. What exactly is a sermon? What's the point? Sometimes it doesn't seem like there is a point, I'm sure, but... What, what, is, what is a sermon supposed to be? How is, the, how is it that the word of God is properly preached? What does that look like? 
what should we expect in the ministry of the word? Now, Paul, in this little verse, in verse 2, he's not, clearly his purpose isn't to tell us, you know, everything there could possibly be said about preaching. That would be a much longer book than Second Timothy and much longer verse than verse 2. Uh, there's much more that could be said on this subject than we find here in this brief verse. But what Paul does say here in verse 2, I think, should be at least instructive for us as to what a sermon should look like, what it should be, or what it ought to be, and what we as believers should come to expect from it. When you gather here every Lord's Day or wherever you happen to go to church and, and the Word of God comes time for the sermon or the preaching of the Word, what should you expect of it? How do you measure, how do you gauge, how do you judge, so to speak, what you are hearing? And what should your response be? Much of that is implied in what Paul says in verse 2. Has it ever crossed your mind to ask what exactly is a sermon? And what should you expect from the preaching of God's word from one Sunday to the next? You know, many definitions of preaching have been offered throughout the years, many of them very helpful um, you know, I, if you've know, been here for a while, you know I like quoting Puritan writers. They're not the only good writers, but I just find them helpful. Thomas Brooks wrote a book, and uh, some of the Puritan titles uh, take about a page long to read them in the original. They're very long. They aren't, they aren't made for our modern reader that if it's more than a bumper sticker, they can't be uh, bothered to read the title, much less the book. But Thomas Brooks wrote a little book on the subject of preaching, and the title might sound strange to your ears, as it did to mine the first time I looked at it, but it's called The Art of Prophesying. The Art of Prophesying. Now, that it doesn't mean that it's a book full of how to predict the future. That's not what he was talking about. But what he was, the reason that he, he called it that, and I think it's instructive, even that title alone, much less the book, is instructive, and what it implies is that the preaching of the Word of God is essentially the speaking forth of the message of God to God's people. What was the main job or job description, so to speak, of the prophets in the Old Testament? I, our first thought, maybe your first thought, like it is mine even now, you think of foretelling the future, prophesying of Christ who was to come, prophesying of future events. Many churches spend a lot of their time trying to uh, decipher these things with the uh, little orphan Annie decoder ring they got in their seminary training uh, to uh, determine when they look at the, at the paper. Nobody reads the paper now, but you know, very often there is a strand of, of evangelical Christianity, mostly dispensationalists, but not just them, that has a tendency to look at the paper. They say, look at the Bible in one hand and the paper in the other and try to determine you know, where what you're reading in today's paper fits in. Uh, there's all kinds of problems with that, but that's not what prophesying really is. It may involve some of that, foretelling future events, but the main thing a prophet did was essentially say, thus saith the Lord. And in fact, I think I've said this before, but I think it's, I think it's accurate. Uh, you can look it up on your own in your own reading of the prophets and tell me if I'm wrong. That'll be your homework. But I think the main message in most of the prophets, both the major and minor prophets, could be summed up in one word. Repent. Most of the time, that's what they were doing. Even when they foretold of, of future events and of Christ to come, their main message was, in light of those things, repent. That's, that's not any less true today. And so preaching in, in terms of prophesying is merely just saying, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God's word says. There's a lot more that we could say at this point in defining preaching, not the least of which would be to say that a sermon 
Because of these things, if you're going to say, thus saith the Lord, or be able to say, thus saith the Lord, a sermon has to be based squarely upon a passage of Scripture. The message of a sermon has to be the message of what? Scripture, of the Word of God. If not, then it may be a lot of things. You know, I don't know if you've heard other kinds of, of preaching that, that maybe weren't fitting this definition. Sometimes what passes for preaching is really an interesting lecture. Sometimes what passes for preaching is a, a motivational speech or some kind of rousing speech. But preaching the word uh, is not those things. It can, be, it can involve some of those things, but if it's not preaching the word of God, it really isn't a sermon at all. Robert Dabney, great 19th century Southern Presbyterian, put it this way. He said, nothing is preaching which is not expository of the scriptures. That may be a word you're not familiar with. Expository means explaining it, laying out what it says and what it means. And so if, if a sermon isn't expository of scripture, it really isn't a sermon or preaching, properly speaking, at all. And so if a sermon is not based on God's word, if it fails to faithfully present and press upon the hearers what that scripture is actually saying then it really isn't preaching at all, whatever it may be seeming to be. I think probably, I'm guessing everybody in this room, if you've been to church a time or two, uh, you can think of, of examples of that kind of preaching. Where there was, I've been, I was at a sermon once, I was telling somebody this week, where there was literally no text. Not a single verse of scripture was uttered. This was in a reformed church. This wasn't in some liberal church somewhere. No scripture. And afterward, I, I was so disturbed, I couldn't even speak to the man. And I, had, I called him later on in the week and tried to explain what was wrong, and he never agreed that I was right. I said, that was an interesting lecture you gave on Sunday night, but it wasn't a sermon. It had no place in the worship of the church. We've all heard sermons that broke both those rules. They weren't based on the Scripture, and they didn't press upon the hearers what the Scripture said. And that's not really what preaching ought to be at all. Now, that much I think Paul assumes in our text. He doesn't feel the need to explain that in so many words. I think he knew that Timothy himself was well aware by that time what a sermon should sound like or be like. Timothy had certainly heard Paul himself preach. We don't know how many times and model that before him. Um, and so Timothy spent a lot of time having Paul himself. That'd be a heck of a teacher to have. Paul taught him the faith. He taught him the doctrines of Christ. And he no doubt at some level taught him how to preach, both by modeling and by his, his teaching. But Paul's words in our text, especially in verse 2, I think, teach us uh, that the true preaching of the word of God, the imparting of the message of God to his people, is always and should always be at some level much more than mere imparting of information or knowledge. It has to include that. But it has to be more than that. Imparting knowledge of Scripture is, is certainly a, a large part of any, of any faithful sermon, any faithful preaching of God's Word, but it's not just giving information and stopping short there. In other words, preaching, as Paul says in verse 2, I think, preaching is intended to change us. Preach, true preaching of God's Word is meant to affect our lives. It's meant, uh, first of all, it's meant to bring us to a saving faith in Christ. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 
17, he says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through what? The word of Christ. And I think what he has in mind there primarily is the preaching. When you read Romans 10, he says, How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach if they're not sent? So the preaching of the gospel is the power of God and the salvation that God often uses for the salvation of the lost. Second, it's used, it's intended to cause you and I who believe to grow in the faith. 2 Timothy 3.17, just a couple verses prior to this, says that the word of God is given what? That the man of God may be complete or mature, equipped for every good work. The word of God is not just meant to be there at the beginning to get you saved, so, so, so to speak, and then kind of let you drift on, on in cruise control. Growing in the faith is not just an intellectual exercise. It means learning to walk by faith and to glorify the Lord Jesus in how we live our day-to-day lives. You know, we often speak of, or maybe you've thought of this, we, we talk about sometimes three-point sermons, and some people would say it has to be a three-point sermon. Um, and what does that mean? We, we expect there to be often three main points in the exposition of a text of Scripture, and while that's all well and good, now it's only well and good if the text of Scripture actually contains three points, right? You shouldn't be adding points where there aren't, and we shouldn't be leaving off points where the Bible is saying something else. Um, but I think what we're, we're talking about here in our text this morning isn't a three-point thing. It's a pointedness thing. There shouldn't, it's not just about having three points in a sermon. It's about a sermon having a point and having some kind of application to our lives. There should be a direct application. We shouldn't be afraid or ashamed of having application in the preaching of the word. We should expect application in some way, shape, or form when the word of God is preached. Albert Martin puts it well when he writes this, along with proclamation and explanation, which are definitely key parts of Scripture, along with proclamation and explanation, application, he says, is the very essence of preaching. In other words, if you proclaim the word, you explain the word, and you stop there, there's something essentially missing from the preaching. Dabney goes on and says, The end or purpose of every oratory is to make men do, not just preaching, any kind of speech, really is to influence people to do things. But the things which the sermon would make men do, he says, are only the things of God. Therefore, it must apply to them the authority of God. It must say, thus saith the Lord. Here's why your life should be different. Here's why we should live a certain way, because God's word says so. He goes on to say that to do otherwise is for a sermon to degenerate into a speech. We don't need speeches on Sunday morning. We need sermons. When you listen to a sermon, are you attentive to what you're listening to? And are you attentive to what you're listening to with an aim toward how you should apply the truth that you're hearing to your daily life? Are you asking yourself, what difference should this make? The things that I'm hearing, the truths that I'm hearing about the gospel in, in whatever particular sermon and text we are looking at on any given Sunday. You expect to hear the application of truth to your life. There are some who would say you should never do that. There are some who, should, who would say and have said that in the preaching there should be no explicit direct application. In other words, everybody in the room is left to kind of think of it on their own. Now, you should be thinking on your own, 
But there should also be direct application of the scriptures in in the preaching of the word. In our text this morning, in verse 2, Paul tells Timothy what? To be ready, it's kind of a strange sounding phrase, to be ready in season and out of season. I didn't know there was a preaching season and not a, a preaching season, but I, I don't think that's what he means. But when you're preaching the word, there is a sense in which you must be ready in season and out of season. He also says that in doing that, Timothy and every preacher today must what? Must reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Sounds like there's a lot of application going on. If you're reproving, rebuking, and exhorting in the preaching with great patience and teaching. Now, verse 2 uh, sets before us kind of a, in rapid fire order five, five different imperatives or commands that all go together. And I think the final four of these commands are to be kind of understood as describing what the preaching should, should entail or the manner in which the word of God should be preached by Timothy and by pastors today. And so having discussed a little bit, at least briefly, what preaching is in general, I think we should look briefly at what the things that Paul lists here as essential to the right preaching of God's word. When Paul says, be ready in season and out of season, uh, it's a strange-looking phrase in, in Greek. You could translate it more literally, in good time and not time. Or I think what he's saying, when it's a good time and when it's not a good time. You know, when, when, it's, when it's convenient or when it's not convenient. When it's well-received or even when it's not well-received. In other words, Paul knew, as from experience, as you read in the book of Acts, and Timothy surely knew as well, um, sometimes uh, the preaching of the word causes problems. Sometimes the preaching of the word can be kind of meddling in some ways. Maybe not intentional, hopefully, but sometimes it, stir, it ruffles feathers. You know, th there are times in the life of a church, in the life of a, of, a, of a nation and things, where there are certain topics that to even bring them up, will bring offense. But sometimes they have to be brought up. And the things that sometimes can bring offense, it's all the more reason to bring them up, not to give offense, but because it's a needful thing, and to avoid it is not to do well. But he says, when he says, be ready in season and out of season, I think he's telling Timothy to always be ready to preach the word, whether it's convenient or not, whether he thinks it'll be well received or not. And so let's look at the things Paul mentions here, the first of which that he mentions in connection with the faithful preaching of the word of God, is a word that we probably don't use much, but it's the word reproof. Reproof. This has the idea, I think, of correcting, uh, of correction or refutation. I think it likely has to do with the correction of wrong belief or wrong doctrine. I think that's the main thing. It might not be the only thing, but I think that's the main idea Paul has in mind when he talks about reproof. Or correction to be sure from time to time the faithful pastor the faithful elder will need to exercise this part of the ministry of God's word um, not just from the pulpit frankly sometimes this kind of correction has to be in a more direct and personal way have you ever ever found yourself in your Christian life if you've been a Christian for a long time ever found yourself in a situation where somebody from the church even a fellow member or an elder or a pastor has had to pull you aside or correct your wrong understanding of something in the Bible it shouldn't be that, that, you know, here and few and far between. It should happen once in a while, unless we've all arrived. If, if we don't need to have our beliefs sometimes corrected and sharpened, what we're saying is everything I need to learn, I've already learned. 
God might as well take me home. I've already learned everything I should possibly have to learn, and I don't need to grow in my understanding of God's word at all. Um, The fact that Paul brings it up here in the midst of talking about preaching, I think teaches us clearly this will be necessary from time to time. Wrong beliefs, errors, false doctrine at times, they have to be addressed at times, even from the pulpit. I think if that's all we're doing, there's something wrong. But certainly there is a place for it. And in fact, when you read Paul's letters, and you know, when you think of Paul's epistles, his letters, what what happened when Paul wrote them? He wrote a a letter to the, the two letters of the church at Corinth. What happened to those letters? Well, besides being circulated among all the churches and ending up in our in our Bibles, they were they were read and taught, and I would even say preached, by the elders and ministers of those churches. They would study it probably in, in a similar way to what we do now, maybe in a less less lengthy manner, but they would teach them and read them uh, to, the, to the people because they were received as they should have been as Scripture. Look at, for, well, you look in there if you want to. 1 Corinthians 15, for example, verses 12 to 19. This whole chapter is about the resurrection, both that of Christ and of believers who, uh, of whom Christ is the first fruits in the resurrection. But look, At 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 19, he says something very strange, uh, maybe strange to our ears. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed or preached as raised from the dead, here it is, how can some of you, people in the church, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Professing Christians in the church that Paul planted we're running around saying, well, there's no resurrection. What on earth? And so Paul, no wonder that chapter is so long. Paul spends a lot of time correcting them, refuting them, or, or giving a reproof in the letter that was to be passed on by the elders when they read the letter. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? This is Paul's hitting the mic. Was this thing on? When I was telling you people all these things, when I preached the gospel for all the time I was in Corinth, did, did, you know, my ears don't work so good. Did I miss something? Did I say something awry? And he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, here he's correcting them, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is what? It's in vain and your faith is in vain. We're wasting our time. If Christ has not been raised, because if if the dead aren't raised, neither has Christ been raised. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God, in other words, preaching falsehood, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is vain or futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He's saying, it's the, it, you're wasting your time if Christ hasn't been raised. And everybody out there should feel sorry for you for for professing to believe what you say you believe and doing all you do to serve Christ. You're wasting your time if Christ has not been raised. But what's he doing? He's correcting them. 
He's reproving them. He's saying, no, of course, they heard Christ was raised. Somehow some people in the church, we, we don't know what the, what the root cause of this was, but they were saying that there was no future resurrection of believers. We don't know if they were former Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees, Christ had to correct them in, in, in the Gospels. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection, the life to come. They thought you serve God in this life, and once you die, that's it. And Jesus told them about the resurrection and said, what did he do? He pointed them to Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. And he said, you know, you, you must not be familiar with the scriptures. I'm paraphrasing. He says, what does it say there about the burning bush? God said, I am, not was, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus uses the tense of a verb back in Exodus 3 to teach the life to come and that we don't just cease to exist. And even the resurrection, all that is taught and implied in that one statement because God doesn't say he was Abraham's God. He says he is. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, still, they still live. In fact, what does Paul say here at the end of that passage? He says, then those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, if there's no resurrection, they have what? They have perished. What's he implying? They haven't perished. They're with their absent from the body and present with the Lord even now. And Christ's resurrection is the proof positive of our resurrection to come. If you're a believer in Christ, this is going to be bad grammar, you can't not be raised because Christ has been raised. His resurrection is the first fruits and guarantee of yours, of your resurrection and glory if you're a believer in Christ this morning. It can't fail to happen because Christ is there. You know why you can't not go to heaven if you're a believer? Because you're united to Christ by faith and he's there now preparing a place for us. The body has to be eventually where the head is, so to speak. He is the anchor. He's the one that's gone through the veil, so to speak, uh, in our place and holds our place for us. And so there was confusion even in the first, you know, the, we often say the good old days, Oh, if only we could get back to the book of Acts. If the church could be as the good old days in Acts. Well, Paul in the first century was already having to put out fires. There was confusion in the church that Paul had planted regarding something like the resurrection. It's hard to imagine. And so Paul needed to reprove or correct them in these things. Timothy and faithful pastors today must be ready to do likewise at times. If a church that Paul planted can go awry... Who are we to think any church that we are in today wouldn't have the same problems or even worse? It's not without reason that back in 2 Timothy 3, a few verses prior to this, verse 16, that Paul tells us one of the things that all scripture is profitable or useful for is what? Reproof. He basically tells Timothy in, in the end of chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for all these things. Therefore, what? Preach it. Doing all these things. Reprove, correct, rebuke, exhort, all these things were based on what he said in the previous verses. Here Paul shows us in verse 2 that such reproof or correction is part of the faithful ministering of God's word. Well, the second thing Paul mentions in connection with preaching is that it will at times involve the need to rebuke as well. To rebuke as well. Now, not to overgeneralize, and there may be some overlap between these terms, so don't 
Don't make this a hard, fast rule. But I think if reproof deals with error or wrong belief, I think rebuke mostly deals with sin or wrong living. Now, Paul certainly rebuked for false teaching as well, right? So there's not a hard, fast rule. But I think the rebuke mainly deals with wrong with wrong living. In some ways, those two things go together. Where you have wrong belief or false teaching, you will also have wrong living or false or sinful living. Uh, here, perhaps even more so than correcting wrong belief, the ministry of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word, when it comes to this kind of thing, can get kind of uncomfortable, can it? The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 27, 5 through 6, We've read this before. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I, I confess, I looked at the Proverbs passage that Rob read uh, before today, but it, it didn't jump off the page at me, but he just read it this morning. Proverbs 28, verses, uh, what, 23 there? He says, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Afterward, nobody says, oh, thank you. You know, I sure needed that. God bless you for rebuking me. Afterward, when we calm down and cool off, we look at it sanely and say, oh, no, they were right. That's how it usually works, right? Nobody takes it. Only this most saintly among us take it well right away. But at the, at the end, they'll know that you were doing them good. The flatterer is doing themselves good not the person they're talking to. So every once in a while, rebuke is a necessary thing for, for any and all of us. There's nothing unloving about a faithful rebuke. You can do it in an unloving way, right? There's nothing unloving about a faithful and kind rebuke. There's nothing nice. That's, that's the, the 11th commandment, be nice, right? There's nothing nice about withholding a rebuke if it's needed. And to rebuke someone doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't mean that you have to do it in a harsh manner. Rebuke doesn't mean yelling, right? Not necessarily. Not necessarily harsh. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the previous book, listen to what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older men as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, you know, there's a, don't do it harshly. Do it as you would a family member. Some of us might do family members more harshly, but you shouldn't do that, right? We should treat them as family in this. You know, there's an old saying I like to use, you know, there's a right way and a wrong way to do these things, and Paul's telling him the right way to do these things. Your rebuke can't be the kind of a harsh rebuke uh, to, a, to an older man, an elder in the church, he says, encourage him as you would a father. How, how would you rebuke your father or your mother? Ever think about that? Ever had to do that? Sometimes when you get to a certain age, the shoe gets flipped on the other foot, so to speak, and you're the one kind of almost feeling like the parent. Funny how that works. You know, but how would you do it? Well, he's, Timothy, do it the same way. Do it the same way in the church because the church is the family and household of God. Sometimes a gentle rebuke or two in private doesn't suffice. We are all stubborn, right? First Timothy five twenty, Paul says to, to Timothy, as for those he's talking about elders, as for those who persist in sin, here it is, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. 
Want to be an elder? <laughs> it's it's a little bit a little bit more uh, open to these things. Rebuke them in the. In other words, sometimes a rebuke of an elder isn't in private. If they won't repent, if they keep on persisting in something they're doing wrong, rebuke them in the presence of all. In other words, in front of the whole church. Paul tells him to do. What about false teachers? How do you rebuke them? He tells Titus in Titus 1 verse 9, he that is an elder or an overseer, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and here it is, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Part of the ministry of the word in the church involves the positive and the negative, the teaching of sound doctrine but rebuking those who contradict that sound doctrine. Just a few verses later in Titus 1.13, he speaks of the, what we think are the Judaizers. He says this, Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. There's all kinds of different ways to rebuke and all kinds of reasons to do so. The scripture tells us that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, and so sin and misery and false teaching tend to spread if they're left unaddressed. In preaching, the rebuke would not be personal, but more along the lines of, you know, what's the saying? If the shoe fits, wear it. You know, if your pastor, me, or anybody else is aiming their rebukes from the pulpit, there's something wrong. That, that should never be the case, in my humble opinion. That should be done personally. If you can't do that, you shouldn't do it in the pulpit. But, but sometimes a rebuke is one of those ones where it, it hits home, and sometimes people say, oh, pastor, how did you know such and such? Well, we don't. But God has a way of applying his word when it's being preached. Sometimes it, the shoe fits and it hurts, but it wasn't aimed by the preacher, but by the Holy Spirit. And I'll say this. Are you willing to take such rebukes to heart from the pulpit if that happens? Because we all need them. None of us have arrived in, in heaven yet. None of us have arrived and attained to the resurrection, so to speak. You know, it's, and I'll say this, it's all well and good, and there's a lot of this that goes on. It's, it's all well and good with most of us when the pastor rebukes the sins of those people out there. Isn't it? Not saying there's not a place for that. But if that's all you ever hear, there's something wrong. Because the person in the pulpit isn't preaching to those people out there, is he? He's preaching to the sinners in here and preaching to the one in the mirror. Uh, there's 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 a place for those things sometimes though uh, you know sometimes we we talk about the sins of society the political evils we just talked about a little this morning there's a time and place for that I won't say you should never do that but if we spend all of our time harping on the sins of other people out there it seems likely that our own sins will never be addressed and we'll never be called to repentance ourselves in the preaching of the word and that shouldn't be the case and so I'll just say, are we all, are you willing to hear and receive rebukes from the pulpit or even in private from the elders of the church? Uh, we have to be, if we're to be any better than those whom Paul speaks of in the next verse. Think about verse 3 when Paul talks about those who what? Will not endure sound teaching and have what? Like a dog. Itching ears. Sermons shouldn't be like scratching the, 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 the dog's ears, you know, and getting his tail to wag. That's, that shouldn't be the way the sermon's always go hopefully you won't feel beat up by the preaching but it shouldn't feel like a dog getting its ears itched in any way well the third thing last but not least paul mentions exhortation you could say in a general way exhortation is kind of the positive side of the coin of the other things 
correction or reputation, reproof, rebuke, those are kind of negative in connotation. He mentions exhortation. So instead of being rebuked for a sin or corrected, sometimes we need to be exhorted to faithfulness and obedience to God's revealed will. Paul spends a lot of time in his letters, his epistles, exhorting people to walk in obedience to God's commandments in light of God's grace and mercy in Christ. In general, you could say that in most of Paul's epistles, what Paul does in some way, he spends the first half or the first part of his, of his letter teaching the doctrines of the gospel. Here's what God has done in his mercy and kindness in Christ to save you from your sins, to save you from the penalty of your sin, from its guilt, to save you from the, the, the enslaving power of your sins in sanctification and being born again, and even in the future to save you from the presence of sin one day in heaven. But then what does he usually do? He explains the gospel, explains how God has saved you. Then what does he do? He applies it. He says, in light of this, in light of God's mercies to you in Christ and saving you from your sin and condemnation in hell, live this way. Live in light of what you believe. Live in light of the reality of what God has done in, in saving you. That's the way that Paul's epistles generally go, and that is in some ways the way that preaching is to go uh, as well. The preaching and teaching of the Word of God should reflect that same pattern. You know, if, Think about this. If, if we don't follow that pattern, what happens? If we spend all of our time talking about doctrine, even if it's true doctrine, that's all well and good, but if all doctrine and no application or exhortation, what's the, what's the result likely to be? We'll probably just be puffed up with knowledge. We'll just be puffed up with knowledge. We'll be all head but no heart and no hands. And that should not be the case. That is a distortion of Christianity that we shouldn't have in our church. Likewise, you flip it around and say, let's not talk doctrine because people say doctrine divides. Let's just talk imperatives. Do, do, do. And never done, done, done by, by Christ. What happens then? You'll fall into probably the same heresies as liberalism has fallen into. What do they do? They essentially view the Christian faith as nothing, uh, nothing but morality. It's, it's all about how you live. Of course, now we're seeing even that kind of begins to dwindle away without the gospel of Christ, too. All of a sudden, things that are sinful, they don't even hold to that being sinful at all. That's, that's the way to fall into moralism or legalism, self-salvation. If all you ever hear is what you're supposed to do and never given the, the strength to do it or the motivation for doing it, uh, the doctrinal underpinnings of that life, you'll end up in moralism and self-salvation, which is no salvation at all. The grace of God and the gospel of Christ has to come first. It's only on the basis of the grace of God in Christ that we are enabled to serve God and walk in obedience to his commandments in the first place. I always say Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. If, I don't know if any of you have spent time memorizing passages of scripture. I hope that you do. But you could do a lot worse than Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And one of the things that Paul says there is he, it's a, it's a Reader's Digest, you know, three verses of how God saves sinners. And what is he By grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So are you saved by works? No. But he goes on to verse 10 and says, For we are his workmanship. This is what he talks about what a believer is. 
created, as a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So what is the Christian view of good works? You're not saved by them, but you are saved for them. Part of the reason God saved you was to change your life and to prepare for himself, to sanctify for himself a people, as the scripture says, who are zealous for good works, not to save themselves, but because they are saved. If you're doing good works, we've often said this in Bible study in recent Sunday nights, if you're doing good works to save yourself, to earn salvation, you're not really doing good works because you're doing them for you. But if your good works are done out of a gratitude for what God has done in saving you by his grace alone, that's a good work. It's the only real way for good works to be done at all. In the first half of, of Paul's letter to the, to the Ephesians, it's a six-chapter-long book, very short. The first three chapters, Paul follows that pattern. He says, here's what God has done in saving you by his grace alone, through faith alone. That first chapter when he talks about all the blessings God has given us in the heavenly places in Christ. He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All the way through the end of chapter 3, he tells us what God has done to save us. And then starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, I therefore, therefore is a hint that the application is coming. Because of what I just told you for three chapters, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you or exhort you to walk in a manner worthy or fitting of the calling to which you have been called in Christ. Here's the calling of the gospel, chapters 1 through 3. In light of that, live in a way that's fitting of those who have been called by the grace of Christ. There is a manner that is right or fitting for those who believe and profess to believe on the name of Christ for salvation. And that is the, that is the manner of life, or Paul uses the word walk, that you and I must aspire to and be exhorted at times to strive after. You and I, we all need those kinds of things. We all need to be exhorted in those things. It's not an accident that, that Paul closes verse 2 by saying that in all of the reproof, rebuke, and exhortation in preaching the word, it will need, be, need to be done, what does he say there, with complete patience and teaching or long-suffering and doctrine. And I think what Paul is hinting at, so to speak, to Timothy and to us is that we at times need to hear these same things over and over again. We need to hear them repeatedly. We, need, we are all in some ways, uh, on our best days, we are all slow learners and we are all quick to forget. And so Paul, you know, it's a safeguard to hear the same things, not the same sermon, I hope, but the same truths over and over again, even if said in a different way. Well, may the Lord Jesus Christ work in you and me by his Holy Spirit and work in us what's pleasing in his sight that we might have the word of God preached to us faithfully, including the necessary correction, rebuke, and exhortation as we might need, the doctrine that we need to hear taught, so that we who believe might take these things to heart and bring forth the fruit of what we hear in our lives from day to day, that you and I might, as Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ our Savior and Lord, and as Paul says, uh, back in 3, verse 17, that you and I might over time be equipped, be complete and equipped for every good work to God's glory. Amen. Let's pray.